Hello, I'm David Oakes and it is Monday morning and I am going down to meet Steve Etches at the Etches Collection in Kimmeridge on the Jurassic Coast in two days' time on Wednesday. The reason I'm recording this intro early is not just because I am horrendously excited about the prospect, but it's because I'm currently standing on the Dinosaur Island in Crystal Palace. This island is home to about 30 examples of extinct megafauna, which were built in the early 1850s by Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins. But what makes them special is that they're all hideously anatomically incorrect. They thought ammonites were eyes, thumb bones were nose bones, uh, bipeds were quadrupeds. They basically got everything wrong. And it was in part thanks to amateur Victorian fossil collectors like Mary Anning that we learned what mistakes were being made and what these beasties really look like. Anyway, in two days' time, I'll be talking to Steve, a modern-day fossil collector who started his obsession in the 1950s. You will not have to wait, however, as due to the magic of editing, we can skip straight forward. I'm really excited about this one because I'm a bit of a dinosaur nut. And, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. This is Trees A Crowd, and this is Steve Etches coming up. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. All his branches, the ivy, her mantle through when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From sculptors and farmers thrilled by hedgehogs or llamas, I'm going to get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, we're in Kimmeridge, Dorset, which features some of the country's most important geological phenomena. It's a dense fossil record which baptised the stretch of seashore as the Jurassic Coast, we're here at the Etches Collection to meet fossil hunter Dr. Steve Etches, MBE, a renowned expert on fossils from the Kimmeridge Clay, whose collection of more than 2,000 pieces grew from a small collection in his garage to this amazing museum of Jurassic marine life. Steve, hello, and welcome to Trees of Crowd. Um, you are officially the first person who's, who I've ever met who's got a museum named after mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't my sort of um, choice, in, in point of fact. When we did the branding... For the museum, it was going to be called the Museum of Jurassic Marine Life, which is a long sort of title. And I remember we were up in London somewhere in some boardroom, and I was dying for a wee, and they, we'd just been discussing this all morning. So I said, Look, I've got to go for a wee, I'll be back in a minute. Mm-hmm. And they, I came back and they said, we've already got it. I said, well, we're going to call it the Edges Collection. I said, well, who's anyone going to know about that? He said, well, no one knew what the Wallace Collection is, so now they do. <laughs> I thought, okay, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But uh, I had no sort of say in it, really. They decided the trustees between them. Well, I guess Wallace was was dead before that was named. So, I mean, it's a different kettle of fish altogether. Yeah. It's the same here in some ways. The the value of the collection will go up once I snuff it, (laughs) in some ways. So you've been open here for about two years, three years? Just over two years, just over two years, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I've come here as a punter, as I said, downstairs. Mm. Um, My father's been going on about it for ages because they live across the way in Corfe. Um, and I think, as any small boy does growing up, they become obsessed with, with dinosaurs and fossils and the like. Yeah. I mean, I guess my background's the same. I mean, as a child, my interests were really diverse, so I found my first fossil when I was five, but that was really digging a hole in the garden and found what I thought looked to be a bead until I put it in my mouth and bit it and thought, no, that's stone. So it <laughs> stayed in my mother's button box. But I never carried on fossil collecting after that. It was just, I think I was about 12... 
uh, our English teacher at school brought some f- fossils in and, and that really stimulated my interest with a few other friends. And uh, my collecting then was done basically on building sites and places like that where okay. used to bring stone in and used to find flint echinoids or limestone from the Mendits with their carboniferous corals in it and goodness knows what. And I never carried it on because my father worked seven days a week. He was an industrial commercial photographer. Okay. So therefore, we never got the opportunity really to go collecting. I always remember my disappointment. I always wanted a geological hammer. And he came back with a tireless hammer, which was worse than a sort of sharp toffee hammer. <laughs> so it never then carried on. Um, and you grew up around here? This I is... grew up around Ferndown, yeah. Okay. So that, that sure, was sure. Weird. But my, my interest was sort of bird watching. In those days, birds egg collecting, shooting, fishing. Fishing took over a lot of my sort of time. And Out I, on the sea or...? No, river. Really? Yeah, okay. river. I loved all that sort of side of it. I love wildlife. I love being on my own. That's one of the things that I do. I love company, but I like being on my own as well. So one of the sort of joys is just to escape. And, of course, Kimmeridge here is the most remote area on the East Dorset coast to actually go. Yeah. I mean, it, as my father describes it, it's a cul-de-sac. Um, yeah, you, you only end up here if you're lost, or you very yeah, you definitely do. want to come. And if you want to go down the beach, you've got like you've got to be certain of the tides because you've got certain headlands that will cut you off. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're going in the winter time, you can get cut off on those headlands if you're not careful. And the sea often on spring tides can wash up against the cliff, so it's a dangerous place to go. But be that as it may, I mean, carrying on my sort of fossil collecting, I only started back in again when I had children, and I'd already established the heating and plumbing business. I mean, going back, there's, there's mm. so much... There's, um, I interviewed a wildlife photographer who, mm. again, he grew up in India, surrounded by wildlife, mm. and sort of laid the bedrock, if you will, yeah. Of, yeah. of a fascination with nature. And then it wasn't until later on in life, after his day job had finished, mm. it wasn't even until he was in his 50s, that mm. he actually started to do it again. And now he's got photographs on display at the Natural History Museum and the like. Yeah. And mm. it's amazing how that sort of childhood resonance... Yeah, it does. Well, it, you, the seed's set then. And it's when you're much older and you've got more time to actually develop that, that that, that seed germinates and you carry on. So my interest, as I say, was to take the children, which they loved it for a bit, but it became more of an obsession for me. Sure. And then one of the things that drew me solely to this particular formation in the Jurassic was the fact that when I'd collected certain material from the Kim region and gone to museums to find out actually their sort of what they were and everything else, I found the information was very... Paul. Yeah. And then also uh, reading up in the, I think it's the Natural History Museum Mesozoic Fossils Handbook, say, in the preface saying that the Kimmeridge clay was the least interesting of the British fossil collector. And it just being ignored. Well, yeah, it had. I mean, don't forget it was, it's a hydrocarbon source, so it was our nor- form of our Norseol. So the Norseol is derived from the Kimmeridge clay. Okay. So it's the most intensely studied hydrocarbon source rock, yet for its macro fossils, no one had done that. So when I came down to Kimmeridge and walked round, especially to the east, um, in those days there was a set of steps to get back up, and we rushed round there because we thought we were going to get cut off by the tide, because in those days there was not much sort of information on tide mm-hmm. sort of uh, reaches and that. And I got to know the area, and I just loved it. It was just remote, and I started finding material then. And I thought, well, what I'll do is I'm going to collect solely just from the Kim region, but I'll also, when I do it, I'm going to do it in a systematic, scientific way where okay. everything I find, I record to exact levels and where it comes from and put all the information in and just build it from there. But it would never... never thought it'd end like this, to be brutally honest. <laughs> um, I mean, for anyone who hasn't been here, it's an incredible museum. The main hall in there with the... 
you're literally under the sea with... with yeah, well, that's what I wanted. But most museums in Britain, why they're often in trouble is they follow the same old format, the Victorian sort of layout where you, you put a specimen on a board, you put a Latin name in front of it or whatever, mm-hmm. and most kids come and think, oh, Christ, not really interested that. We're trying to bring it more to life. So we use the CGI on the sort of thing to be immersed in the Jurassic Sea. You see the interaction between the sort of reptiles, fish and everything else. And then you can look at the fossils on the sort of wall that's just sure. below them. And you can link it to something real. Yeah, and we do it in a way where we do the description in a sort of field notebook form and a few annotated drawings mm-hmm. and that's it we don't put Latin names after it who's interested in that that's just a and actually they make it more complex paleontology than it need be why put all these Latin names on it anyhow it's just to confuse the public well I think that's what's interesting about your route into this is you came here into fossils as an everyman mm. and that's it. therefore know exactly what it is to be mm. refused entry to this sort of elite club if you will yeah, the thing is with it, though, you see, is the fact that, OK, if you go to university and you get a degree and your PhD, well, that's four years of intensive study, but most of that study is actually just proven that you can assimilate and, and, and work out sort of problems. Yeah. Um, if you think of like education as a circle, well, I've gone the other way, the other route, missed out all the boring bits and got to the bits I need to do. But field experience is the thing you can't learn out of books. So yeah. 35 years of collecting... Which is what nobody ever did as well. No. I mean... No. You always get people who would... Either study the fossils in the museum, the paleontologists, they, but they they were like casual muskets with a hammer and chisel on their hands because they wouldn't be able to extract it or clean it. Yeah. So there's a skill to it. So one of the skills is actually finding it for a start, extracting it because that's a skill in its own right, mm-hmm. cleaning it, and then researching it. So you said that you found your first fossil, which you trusted with teeth at the age of seven, five, five, five. and then we're collecting on building sites and like that. Yes. Before your children got you really back into it, mm. how big a collection had you mustered? Nothing. Nothing? No, literally nothing. Just... Gone. Yeah. No, nothing. And so what was it about your children that sparked you? It's, it's Carla and... No, it's just that actually to be... Yeah, my daughter who hated this fossil collecting life, she's the most... And now she works here. <laughs> yes, she does it. But the, the time, you see, is, is if you imagine working seven days a week, established in a heating and plumbing business, and it was... Week in, week out, week out, you know, working intensively all the time, not just sort of nine to five, nine or eight till sort of 11 o'clock at night or 12 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And it was getting a bit tiring. And I said to my wife, oh, I need a day off. And she said, Well, look, I'll tell you what, come down. There's a guy who got a fossil collection in a shop. He sells rocks and minerals. And we went down there and I must have spent two hours looking at all his fossil collection, which I was amazed by. What was uh, it? Was it mostly ammonites? Was mostly it? ammonites okay. from down Charmouth and places like that. Really nice, but of course it's. Now it would be mediocre, you know what I mean? But in those days, beautiful. I mean, the and first time you see a fossil as a child and... Oh, that excitement. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm, it still stuns me. Yeah. No, it does. Even now, when you find something, it's still that same childhood thrill. It's one of those... That, OK, look at... Win the lottery. Yeah, um, they might get a bit of excitement. You go and buy your car, but you soon get fed up with that. This is ongoing because you're now discovering something that's completely unique in you and you're the first person to find it. And that... That buzz is there all the time. And when you find something really good, I can tell you now the adrenaline goes and the old shakes go and it really does sort of enthuse you and you can do things that you never thought you could do. Has there ever been... I mean, there, there are full-on ichthyosaur uh, fossils that you've got back there. You've got a whole host of massive, whole, whole creature finds. Not Has, whole creature, but nearly whole nearly creature whole. finds. Yeah, you're right. Has there been anything where you've... You've just gone, I think I know what this is, and you know that you're not going to find out what it is for a fair amount of time, but your, your excitement's sort of peaking. And 
most of the things I find to be brutally frank and honest, a bit of a nerd, I know what I've got. <laughs> <clears throat> There's a few things that perhaps that I found in the past that I wasn't really sure. One of them was quite interesting. It was a spherical object, about sort of three inches round. It looked like a big round pebble I found loose on the shore. Uh-huh. And it looked like an onion. And in some ways, it's all onion skin, so very thin sort of skin up to it. It was like... So when I cut it with a diamond saw, it was just like a very... An onion that all goes in in segments, mm-hmm. very thin and very sort of going into the nucleus. And I polished it extremely hard, and I thought, well, I can't understand what this is at all. Now, it must be derived from the Kimmich clay. Um, never knew what it was. And anyhow, someone else had said, well, we'll do a s- study on it. They couldn't work out what it was. And then a friend of mine came along and said, can I borrow this specimen? I said, well, yeah, if you want. And he came back and he, he bought back a similar object. He said, I've got this from Birmingham, some sort of thing. It's cut in half. It's much smaller, probably two inches across. Mm-hmm. And he said, what do you think it is? And I said, I don't know. He said, it's a human urolith. I said, what's that? A bladder stone. And <laughs> anyhow, he thinks this big thing is a reptile bladder. And if it is, it'll oh, be wow. the first urolith from 50, 50 million years hence that no one's ever found, you know? So the excitement's That's quite... That's incredible. Yeah. How long and, ago did you find that? Oh, God, about 20 years ago. And are people still wondering, is it... Oh, no, so he, he's now... The study's still going on. All these people have looked at it, and they, it, generally everyone's accepted now. They think it's a Eurolift. Now, the question is, because it's not in situ, was it from the Kimmeridge clay? Uh-huh. We're pretty sure it was. But, hey... It's, it's I mean, the lessons you can learn about the digestive tract of these oh, yeah. creatures is that. But all... in a reptile urolith. So, yeah, um, interesting. And, and reptiles to this day have these stones, I guess? Pass, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Still, the study's still carrying on. If, it, if, if it's proven, I think they're trying to get the paper in nature. So, it's quite an interesting sort of thing. To get it in nature, it's got to be really. Sure. Yeah. Amazing. Hmm. Um, so, back to the yeah, uh, Wimborne fossil shop. Hmm. Um, so you were there and your kids... Yeah, so the guy sort of saw my interest and said, look, you know, do you collect fossils? I said, he used to, but not now. And um, he said, well, why don't you take your family out? There's a few books on localities and everything else. And I, okay, no, I'll do that. And we did, and we loved it. The kids loved it. It was, I always remember it was a sunny days we used to go, I don't know why, but um, they loved it. And then generally, because Dorset is so rich in fossil material mm-hmm. that you're spoiled, you can go anywhere and find fossil material and it was lovely we used to have a barbecue at the end of it and everything kids loved it but then I suppose finding some of the Kimmeridgean material um, that then my question arose is do I really want a massive collection of Dorset fossils that everyone else has got you've got common groups and everything else mm-hmm. and everyone collects the same sort of thing we're all chasing the same thing where and yet with the Kimmeridge how claim, big is the community do you think oh collecting wise yeah, oh, massive is. massive yeah Oh, God, you get commercial collectors and everything. People make a living out of collecting and selling fossils. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, but I didn't want to do that. I no. just wanted to... So, the Kim, the so why Kimmeridge? If you weren't from here... Because of, the, because of the remoteness for a start coming down to collect. So there's no one, no pressure, no one else going along the beach in front of you or behind you collecting the same things. The remoteness, the fact that no one had hardly ever done it to the exclusion of everything else. Um, and just thinking, well... I'm never going to be remembered for my plumbing skills because no matter how good you are, in 10 years, you're going to be ripped out. So this was something that I thought, well, I might be able to make an achievement in this if I sort of do it in a comprehensive way. Uh And I think that's the sort of 
how it started in some ways. And of course, then you get a lucky find, and that spurs you on to go and. And the Bournemouth Echo writes up a piece about you. Well, I didn't even know. I've never looked for publicity. Sure. I've never, because the last thing. Well, we yeah. won't release this. We'll keep this in no, the No, no, box. no, we'll no, it's it's no. No, it just doesn't matter now. Um, <laughs> water under the bridge. And if someone else carries on, that's fine. Um, but again, the sparseness of, of finds. You're not going to go down and find stuff every time. Mm-hmm. It's very, maybe two or three finds a year if you're lucky. So, how often back then were you going down? Well, on the weekends, that was all I could do, okay. which would be a Saturday or Sunday, and basically probably two or three times a month if I was lucky. I mean, obviously, with, with big specimens, they take a while to, to expose and to extract, or is it quick? Is it because it's... What's the texture of the rock, I guess? Well, that's my question. Um, well, let's put it this way. One of the biggest things I found was a, a, a jaw, a mandible, that two-metre-long pliosaur jaw, which is mm-hmm. the sort of top food chain predator. I didn't dig that out. The back part, I mean, the lovely story to this, the back part, so in other words, where it hinges with your skull, mm-hmm. fell out of the cliff and it was scattered all over the beach in amongst shingle and everything else. And I thought, my God, when I saw it, I recognised what it was straight away, picked up all the chunks and then went back the next day. It was a horrible day, I remember that. Tried to find where it had come from. And I could see where it had come from in the cliff. Uh-huh. But it was so high and so... in a de- I'm not going to... Don't go in the health and safety thing, but anyhow, it's a dangerous thing to do. So we didn't oh, go it. into it. Like it's happened now, they can't get you. In well, we, we just got a roll-up steel ladder to get up to it. But what we <laughs> found was actually that instead of being in front of you, it was actually five foot behind you. In other words, it overhanging oh, section God. of rock is just lethal, too too deadly. You'd never do it. So it you're there impossible. hanging like Tom Cruise yeah. in a Mission Impossible. Film. Yeah, and and so over a three or four year period, I was still picking chunks out of the shingle. And I'd had these two sections, so the back parts of the jaw was just two sections of the back part, you know, both uh, like yeah. the lower jaw. And I stuck those together, and I'd find another bit, and it would go in, and I thought, oh, great. Um, and all the year, every year, I used to photograph the profile of the cliff. And if you studied each photo from the same angle, uh-huh. and actually look at it over the sort of four-year period, you could see there was bits breaking away. And So the erosion at Kimbridge is by desiccation, wet dry, wet dry, wet dry. And bits were falling off. But anyway, after sort of four years, there was a a slight sort of movement, a crack in the sort of cliff, but nothing to sort of, you know, give you any clue that anything was going to happen. In fact, it was a joke that in 40 years' time it would fall out and someone else would get that bit and they'd sure. get the tooth-bearing section and I wouldn't. And so, um, cut a long story short, I was led in bed one Saturday morning thinking, Do you know, I must... My wife's pregnant, the last child, and I'll go round and see if I can find... Um, spend some sort of time and go there that day to, to look to see if I could find the find the rest of it rest of it see if it had come out I'd go around the thousands of times still up the cliff up the cliff all the time uh, it was you know and I went around that morning and looked at the profile of the cliff it was early morning the sun was just coming up uh-huh. and I thought my god there's a massive great hole in the cliff oh no it's falling and looking down at the base of the cliff, it was grass, clay, rubble, limestone, probably about, I don't know, two or three hundred tonnes of sort of rubble. That oh, wow, a huge Massive cliff. great cliff fall. And instantly I knew, and I started shaking, it's there, it's there. And I remember just pulling the top of the shale away, the broken shale, and the tip of this massive jaw was stuck up. Oh, so... <laughs> 
I mean, frantically sort of digging in the loose stuff, and there was a bigger chunk. Oh my god! Putting it to one side. So, how many pieces did you collect? And how how much? Made I collected. I collected most of it. Probably weighed about hundred weight and a half, hundred weight and three quarters. Stuck it in a rucksack. Walked for about a mile with it. Nearly crippled me. I don't know why I did do it in two or three journeys, uh-huh. but I did. And then that was it. And um, I think there were still some bits missing. So in those days, I had quite a few people working for me. So we went down there with spades and shovels and everything else, and we found that the other bits of it that made it sort of complete. The only bits that we were missing were the teeth that snapped off, some of the teeth that snapped off. Uh-huh. And we never found those. Then about a couple of weeks later, a massive storm and washed all that away. So, so you lost what the might have lost what there was. So we got the complete thing anyhow. And you think this was just the jawbone, this wasn't... Yeah, there's no more. Well, if the skull's in there, it might be two or three foot back in there, and you'll... Not in my lifetime will you see it. That's the trouble with it. And are most of your finds coming from the erosion of the cliff face? No, 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 we don't collect out the cliff at all. So it's on the intertidal levels, the same as anywhere else at Lyme Regis. When the tide goes out on big spring tides, it it yields these ledges that Mm -hmm. actually, with a shingle, just gently braise those ledges away, exposes the fossils there. So that's the easiest place to collect them before they get destroyed by the sea. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, one thing that I've, I've discovered in, in, in my research as I do my prep, um, there are certain species that you have been the first to discover and have been named after you. Is there any particular among those that you... Uh, we've probably got 11 new species. Oh, I thought we had 10. Dis- no, we've got 11. There's oh, you've, been, you've been out hunting since Yeah, but we've got loads bit. more, to be honest with <laughs> They're not yet described. We've got lots and lots more that are completely new to science, yet to be described. That's the nice thing about this, that a lot of the material is completely new to science. Mm-hmm. This is why I can say with every confidence that there's no museum in Britain can match what we've got. That's including the major collections as well. In diversity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we got... What have we got... Um, most of the things I don't want named after me, so we named a new pterosaur mm-hmm. after Gerald Scarf, who did a caricature of Margaret Thatcher as a pterosaur called Tory Dactylus. Gerald Scarf is married to Jane Asher. That's it. Who I've worked with. Oh, right. So I've yeah, met, they. I've met Gerald a few times. He's amazing. Yeah, no, they came down, actually, they were chuffed to nuts. <laughs> and my co author sort of was asked, Oh, did you, um, did you ask Gerald Scarf's permission to name the species after him? He said, Well, no, because he never asked Margaret Thatcher could he name <laughs> Tory Dactylus after her. It's quite funny, really. So he was chuffed to nuts, and, and he's a lovely guy because mm-hmm. they both came down, and he's given us the exclusive right to use that cartoon that he's got. So we, we've got that embossed on T-shirts. Brilliant. So that's really nice. Um, so, yeah, but lots of other things sort of that are new to science. So it, it's, it's really good. I, um, what else have you got? New dragonfly, um, another pterosaur as well. Uh, what else? Ammonites. I've got a, a batoid ray. Yes, that's a fit. Yeah, first ray. Yep, yeah. it's got, fascinating. So, are these species all coming from different eras, or is there no, united? Right, the Kimmeridge clay was laid down about 157 million years ago, and extends 152 to 150, so five million year period. Okay, and it's all exclusive from that, from that sort of five million year period. And this is a period that people aren't just, uh, looking into. At long, all. long thought to be not that interesting for fossil material. I mean, that's that's good. I mean, it's amazing for you, but yeah, it's, that's it's, brilliant. it's amazingly naive of the scientific community. Yeah, but don't... Oh, no, no, go on, go tell. Well, academics don't sort of... You know, some academics are brilliant. They're really good. Some people are pseudo-academics. What they talk about is not really real. Sure. Um, and It's just from reading books. And they, they bluff books. people with their science. So actually, when you go into it, you find out that actually, no, that's not correct. And the nice thing is, with from my perspective... 
is I can prove they're wrong by finding the fossil evidence to prove they're wrong. Sure. So that's the nice thing about that. You're a modern-day Mary Anning, if you will. No, not really, but <laughs> it's just nice that... I think this branch of science is, is off-putting to some people because they make it exclusive, make it complicated, mm. and it doesn't need to be. Observational skills are the best thing, and actually when you find something, you have to look for modern counterparts often to get the information. And it's the same with, like... Um, stuff that I found, like a fish that I found that it looked very similar to a modern fish. And we mm-hmm. think it's, a, it's an ancestor of an angler fish, that type of bottom-feeding fish. And it was only looking to the modern material. It's the same with the ammonite eggs. So we got the world's first ammonite eggs. Wow. Um, now, bearing in mind there's probably 8,500 different species, species named of species yeah. of ammonites. They evolved about 200 million years ago, went extinct, say, 65 million years ago. And no one's ever found their eggs. Now... That's a lovely find, because when I found the dragonfly wing, that was in 1987, and we, let, we had, had hurricane-force winds then, mm-hmm. and it ripped into the cliffs down here and exposed some really brilliant sort of mudstones and rocks that would normally be sort of all crumbly. And I found the dragonfly wing, I thought, I'll go back next day and I'll find some more. And I split the same suite of rocks up, and I found these two... I didn't find any more insect remains, but I found this slab with two, like, accumulated, like, ovoid sort of... Um, structures they look like sacks of eggs Mm -hmm. now under a microscope they did and they were slightly nacreous like gold and silver sort of colour and phosphatic and I thought that's strange they really look like eggs now there's no reference books to tell you what they are because no one's ever found the things and so how do you do no what I did look to the modern so I looked through my child's book on marine organisms and then came across cephalopods cuttlefish uh-huh. and their eggs now these eggs individual eggs are 2 mil the ammonite eggs and cuttlefish eggs are about 10 or 12 mil but what clinched it for me was the shape of the cuttlefish eggs were identical to these and I thought they've got to be cephalopod eggs what other cephalopods you know and what have we got ammonites and I thought Christ if they're ammonite eggs that'll be the world first now how can I prove they're ammonite eggs so long came a professor a friend of mine who's dead now but he worked on fossil nautiloids a sister group in the ammonites mm-hmm. And said, I, Steve, I think they could be eggs. What we'll do is we'll cut them. We'll use a sort of diamond saw and cut them. And if we find the embryos inside, you've proved your point. The little, you know, nucleoid sort of protoconch ammonites. And I said, well, I don't really want to do that, Michael. If they're, they're extremely rare, I really don't, don't want to, cut want to sort of cut these. He said, well, I don't think you'll find any more. I said, well, I'll wait and I'll see if I do. And I found another slab with... Um, and I was cleaning that down with a power, like an air pen and there was a partial body chamber of an ammonite and I just buzzing it down thought, oh no there was a sack of eggs with it and I've put the sort of point of like right next to each other ne- yeah adjacent with it you know in, in with it I thought, oh no but there was the first clue now the, the, the this cluster of eggs were much smaller than the original ones I found but so was the ammonite and I thought well it got to be this it must be. Now, along with come an academic said, hang on, Steve, dead ammonite on the seafloor. It's a lovely nice. hollow receptacle for anything to creep mm-hmm. inside to lay its eggs. How can you say they're ammonite eggs? True. Yeah. So I thought, right, well, keep looking. Years passed by again. I'm going on the ledges, and there was a crushed ammonite in the middle of it, a sack of eggs. I thought, oh, great, got it. So I then contacted an academic friend of mine, Dave Martin at Portsmouth University. He was a... I call him a maverick paleontologist. He's a professor, but he's, he thinks outside the box. He doesn't think in straight lines. He's prepared to look at the, you know, the, anything. 
And I phoned him and said, look, Dave, I found these ammonites inside the, uh, the ammonite eggs inside the ammonite. He said, well, bring them down. We'll, we'll take two eggs off. We'll crack them in half. We'll use a scan electron microscope. We'll have a look. So we did that. And you could see the jelly-like layer it's in. You could uh-huh. see the egg capsule. No embryo inside because, again, still inside the female. They may have just been fertilized, yeah. not developed or whatever. And I, then I found another cluster of eggs with tubercles all over them. So I started to find a lot more. So I thought, really, I would like to write a scientific paper to describe this. I think we've got enough evidence to prove that that. And so I, working with a friend of mine, Jane Clark, who we drafted and did this paper, but it didn't look full enough. It had to be a bit more sort of... So there was another friend of mine who was an academic, um, John Callerman, who's a world authority on ammonites, highly respected. Mm-hmm. So I contacted him, and he, he came back and said, well, first thing, Steve, you've got to prove to me they're ammonite eggs. So I'm a good con man because he believed me. <laughs> so he came on and he actually drafted this paper we added in to actually try and disprove the fact they were ammonite eggs. He then came to the conclusion at the end of it, they were ammonite eggs. So we published on that. No one's come back and said we think you're wrong. But we still got to find more. more. And I think... You know, How many finds do you... I mean, I've this probably is got like eight finds of ammonite eggs now. The big question, I guess, is mm. at what point does the establishment accept you as one of their own? They don't, I don't think. They still hold your arms late. Don't worry about that. Um, but, but, I mean, they, they surely they have to. The, the quality of your finds, the frequency of your finds, the rarity of your finds yeah. suggests that you have got something that they would be foolish to ignore. And are. Some of them seem to be... Yeah, I mean, don't not. get me wrong. I'm not tying everyone with the same sort of brush. In point of fact, you know, the honorary doctor I got from Southampton, which is a really good, um, you know, well-renowned sort of university, mm-hmm. and the guy who put me up for that, brilliant guy... Um, really, really nice, good for this sort of collection and everything else. <laughs> when they phoned me up and said, look, you've been offered this thing, and I said, well, I don't really want to know if I want to accept it. And he said, why? I said, well, you give them to sort of pop stars and everyone else. It doesn't, it doesn't really mean a lot. And the guys took a deep breath and said, yeah, but Steve, this is for paleontology, not for any music or something like yeah. that. So I advise you to sort of think, and I thought, okay, yeah, I'll, you know. In that case, I I remember vividly, I was at University of Manchester, and I remember the Bee Gees were given an honorary music degree, and all of the music professors refused to give it to them. Did they? (laughs) So they had to find a professor from the um, geography department to give it to them, because they were like, we're not giving the Bee Gees an honorary degree. But No, it's (laughs) not. But but the thing is, I guess in some ways, I... I'm not the sort of guy to sit down on me and draft a scientific paper that bores me to hell because it's got to be done in an accepted sort of manner to be, you know. So are um, there people you've been partnering with? Yeah, I've been partnering with, yeah, often. So on the Ammonite one, I was a lead author on that because basically my information was, most of it was drafted in the sort of paper. So it's just that a friend of mine collated it with me um, because I'd not sit there and type it out. But, um, yeah, so we've done lots and lots of papers, a lot of help and in input on geological matters as well. So sure. not just paleontology, not just fossil collecting. Well, they're hand in hand, really, aren't they? You yeah. Can't oh, you've got another geology. To, yeah, exactly. Just before I arrived, I was talking cool. um, to you about the dinosaurs in Crystal Palace. And I mm-hmm. think it sort of resonated with me, the fact that the iguanodon that they constructed in the 1850s there... Yeah, that thumb spike on its nose. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. literally just found one tooth, presumed their... Looked, which looked like an iguana, so mm. called it iguanodon, yeah. and yeah. then made a giant iguana with a That's thumb it. spike on its nose. Yeah. And, I mean, it sounds as if fossil collecting and 
uh, determining what the species is or what it's like is still basically the same thing. Yeah, you find more evidence. So people theorise and bring out something that we we accept it does this until we get new information. Because don't forget, when I was a kid, that's a long time ago, dinosaurs were laughed at. They had a brain the size of a pea and walked at a maximum of two mile an hour. Mm-hmm. We now know they were diverse. Um, they covered every sort of food web going, you know what I mean? Um, could Very agile. Some could climb trees. I mean, again, look, we've got birds, dinosaurs, haven't yeah. died Do you ever encounter any creationists yeah. down here? Yeah. Have you had any fun encounters with them? No, I don't have a lot of time for them. Just, to be honest, what's the point in arguing? They've got their views. Yeah. And they're not going to accept yours. And so, but if they're coming down here specifically to sort of antagonise and they do they love it because they, they'll come in they won't say what they are but they'll suddenly hit you with a question you think ah I know who you are and that's fine if they want to go that way that, that's fine yeah. they, they can hold their views and look at them there's a creationist um, museum in America I mean most of the nutcases there anyway um, that they get hundreds of thousands of people visit it and they teach it don't they yeah. in some states so it's I mean, a funny place. I remember being, I think I was in a religious studies class at school and got handed a creationist magazine, which I thought God. was absolutely fantastic. I remember going through it going, this is, how can you ignore so much no, no. fact? And, or scientifically. Yeah, but we get the same now with politicians, don't we? So <laughs> you see what I mean? They can just twist things around. Yeah. So no. Um, now we do get them, but I haven't got a lot of time for them. So as I say, it's a waste of time arguing. I'm not going to change my views. Sure. They're not going to change their views. So, so how did this museum come about? I mean, this museum, right? So, one of the things that um, I always, about 20 years ago, wanted to sort of a museum in a way, rather naively in those days. Mm-hmm. And um, we set up a sort of charitable trust to try and achieve it. And basically, we're looking for places to sort of house this thing. I'm glad it didn't happen then because it wouldn't be as good. And it's just a long story in, in point of fact, following sort of leads to places. One of the places was at Lulworth, mm-hmm. and the guy offered to build us a mu- new museum there to house it, but the, the rental cost, we, we just couldn't, sure. you know, couldn't afford it. And then someone offered us a building for nothing locally, but the council wouldn't let us develop that. And was this coming because you were becoming known locally or because you were at, like, reaching no, out I just, to people? No, because I needed to do that. Because don't forget, the garage was getting full. <laughs> I had it housed in my sort of garage, which then was attached to the house, and it took over. It was not a garage, you know. It was yeah, brilliantly yeah. lit and everything else. It was all, you know, airtight, uh, controlled environment. But the thing is, as you go through life, you re- suddenly realise that you're building this collection. What are you going to do with it? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, and I, I don't want to be disparaging to most museums, but the, our local museums couldn't take it. Sure. They, it's got to be kept in the in the right environments and. There's no way they could look after it. So well, that was the that was the problem. So at the end of the day, it was it was really trying to do a museum um, from our own sort of perspective. But the the fact that at the end of the day, I live in at Kimmer- I lived at Kimmeridge. I've lived at Kimmeridge for probably the last 25 years. Okay. Um, we looked at places, Swanage, and everything. But it, everything comes to a sort of sorry end in some ways. And um, it was only the landowner here who owns a lot of the land around here heard wrongly that he thought my collection was going to Lulworth. Uh, and he said to his agent, God bless local rivalry. Really, really don't want it going there. Um, can we not offer him some something here? Well, there's a lucky break in some ways that the village hall over near the cafe there was in disrepair and needed completely revamping. 
And so I think what we came with a farmer friend of mine, we actually exchanged with the village permission to exchange that plot of land, gave it back to the estate, and in, in exchange they gave us this plot. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really, we went to the lottery to try and achieve this. It was a, I mean, it's a, a long story of trying to get money. We thought we'd get it all privately, but... but no. Just, no. So what, what was it, other than winning the lottery in a random sense, but like, what was it about the Lottery Commission that went, this is something that needs to be supported? Because I imagine they must be inundated with requests. They are. The guy who applied, John Woodward, who's brilliant, because he got the Tank Museum funding for all the extensions on there, uh -huh. so his track record is really good, highly respected with the lottery people he came on board initially to sort of um and said look trying to raise the money privately you're not going to probably do it it's going to take you ages but if you go the lottery route it's a bit more long-winded and you lose a little bit of control but basically you know you it might get good there so they've come down and look at the sort of collection and sell them the idea and everything else and i guess in some ways um with the backing we had from uh, like national museums to say what it represented from academics and what it that they came on board mm -hmm. um, so we were very lucky to sort of get that sort of funding I mean I mean it's astounding I mean it is um, the only thing is with it of course that the, the cost exponentially went going. up and up and up and um, so it's a lovely building and it's very uh, cost effective to run because it's geothermally heated okay and we've got PV panels on the south facing roof so again it's very very Economical, to sort of, and it's economical a big, and but it's a big building for Cambridge. Yes, it is. I a mean, really big. I think building. it's the biggest building it, in Cambridge. Yeah. yeah, and it, but it fits in the landscape quite well. Oh, it does. They've done a really good job. I mean, it, I imagine it's local stone as well. They've used. Oh yeah, 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 and highly insulated, so it's much more insulated than normal British standards to sort of. Um, so it's good. You can um, imagine the locals coming to stay here just because it's warmer than their houses. Oh, it is warmer. <laughs> oh, it is warm. It's lovely. Um, so it's here for the future. But again, with museums, again. If you think about it, it's a remote location, mm -hmm. and we're really our funding comes from footfall and what we sell in the shop. So, oh. how busy does it get? Well, at this time of year, not at, at all. all. So, it's only through the sort of summer season that we 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 get the numbers. So, we, I think we get about twenty five thousand visitors a year. Which okay, is that's a good. lot. That's quite good. It's not enough to sustain it, though. No. If we need, because we this is not a music. This is we we. You know, our sort of um, thing is actually to be a centre for education and research as well. Mm -hmm. I think so. you were doing a tour yesterday or something with the local school group. I was, I think. I was yeah, we do school, universities, goodness knows what. Then we go out to sort of do. I go out to do talks. In fact, I've got a geoliteracy tour with a PSGB to London, Birmingham, Aberdeen, uh -huh. just to sort of talk about the collection and what it represents and what it is. Um, but we need. What we're looking for is, is funding from industry. So what we're looking is for the oil industries, because, again, it's a source rock yeah. on North Sea oil. And they've been very good. good. And so hopefully we can sustain it through um, grants from them. And we can expand it. So we, we need to, we need a lot, we've got a lot more in the planning to do. So we're not standing on sort of uh, what we've done now. We really want to make it ten times better. Sure. And we've got a sort of staff, who, um, education lady, Retail, they're really, really good. They're all women, actually. By the way, I'm the only person bloke that works here. Um, is that through choice of yours? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I look. I, I go out and find the stuff, prep it. We, my office is up there, and it's remote from their office. But 
Well, no, they're very one good. of the nice things through there is you can sort of see where you do do your work. Exactly. Well, we need to explore. expand that though, where we get a little camera on my sort of glasses, and as oh, I'm wow. prepping it, you see it directly. At the moment, we just recorded it. Yeah. It's not very good, but we've we've got some new recordings now to make it a lot better. But to do it live would be better. I mean, it's one of the things I particularly like about the collection is it does feel like it's. It's like it's the factory floor, if you will. You feel like it's an ongoing process that you aren't yeah, just if, looking if, at specimens. Yeah, or... and if people got queries, they'll come to me about it. You know, because people walk in and say, "Oh, is the collector still alive?" And they say, "Well, just." But we've done his obituary already, by the way. <laughs> That's the girls, you know. <laughs> so, how often do you get out now? Like, how? Um, not enough, probably. Again, I was out yesterday afternoon. Uh, again an afternoon before that did you find Pro- anything no 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 and it's very poor at the moment we, we're going through this global warming phase aren't we so we're not I getting hadn't noticed well we're not getting hurricanes down here unfortunately that's what we need we yeah. need some dynamic stormy conditions we're not getting them so for the last two years it's been very poor that's a brilliantly perverse view of climate change <laughs> isn't it no we, we we respect the world and where everything's come from but if it gets a little bit worse we might find a bit more about the past yeah. Destructive history. Yeah, but don't forget, you see, this is the thing that you hear now people all oh, save the planet. Mm-hmm. No, don't save the The planet will be all right. It's save the human race. Yeah. That's what it's all about. And to be honest, the only, well, it, it's, it's really, oh, the world temperatures have gone up, the geological record, far in excess of what they're going to do now. And life's sustained itself. We might not be here, but life will still go on. Yeah. So your, your geothermal power support for this building is therefore just to preserve humankind rather than for the planet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, someone said, if you want to be green, kill yourself. That's the only way, really. Because the overpopulation of the world is really what's causing yes. problems. Yeah, without, I mean, one of the things that people often ask me about this podcast is, what's your agenda? What's your political, environmental thing? And I so far successfully kept myself away oh, yeah, from that discussion. To. Oh, God. Um, well, have you come it. across Greta Thunberg, the... Scandinavian 16 year old who's oh, yeah, yeah. championing walking out yeah, to school to try yeah, and sort of yeah. but unfortunately poor devil you know, um, money talks yes, and look at America you've now got a guy there who doesn't recognise it just thinks it's a joke and whatever we do in this country is about 1% of the add, add into the sort of climate change sort of thing so unfortunately you've got places like China India that are up and coming they want all what we've had yeah. and unfortunately the thing that I've one of the things I'm best known for is a television show about Victorians oh. and uh, I've found it fascinating because we get to represent Brunel and the Industrial Revolution mm. and mm. all the scientific developments mm. of the time and they were doing it at a time where nobody else was so they got uh, to do it without any of the repercussions yeah. and you sit here now going well we got to do it but you're yeah. not allowed yeah, to exactly and that's what we're trying to do yeah we can't and, and, and yet the, sci- the scientific developments that the Chinese are discovering, their industrial revolution is more of a digital and artificial mm. intelligence revolution, mm. which is equally as productive as Brunel and, oh, yeah. and Darwin and the like. Yeah, no, I, I, but the only thing that worries me about you is we always want power. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, new technology used to actually dominate through power and, and used for the wrong sort of things, but... So what's, what's next for you in the collection? What's your current Find project? new material. New fossils. No, it's still finding... I mean, I've been prepping stuff now. It's ongoing all the time. There's always material I'm cleaning um, that has been found. I've got friends of mine who often go fossil collecting. They'll phone me up and say, well, there's a fish down here. I don't really want the thing or if you want to come and collect it. So it's great. You know, we got a really good... We're basically the RSPCA for lost fossils. Yeah, we've got friends who collect here who... who 
we all work together. So it's lovely. It's not in competition. Um, we respect what they find. We record what they've got because they want to keep it. That's great. But we uh -huh. all I want to do at the moment is to increase the diversity of what lived at that time, find the evidence for that. So from the smallest to these barnacles we got to the biggest, um, that's really just to, in my lifetime, just to increase the span of we know what's been living at this sort of time. Do you have a feeling that we're sort of on top of an understanding now? Do we think we've got it? Or do you think there's another breakthrough to be had? In what way do you mean? Go on. Well, I don't really know. In terms of, of species diversity, like span oh, life expectancy? Just, yeah, I mean, diversity, we're just finding lots more. You can look for 100 lifetimes, still keep finding things you'd never found before. So it's a really sort of diverse world. It's not, everyone looks back at the sort of primitive world where, you know, things are still evolving, but there was still such a diversity at that time. Mm -hmm. And what you look at is species peak and then die out through no reason sometimes. It's not a catastrophe or something that's killed them. It's no, just, just that the they sun. go up and they go back down again. It's like countries and their power. You know, this actually the sort of same. Um, some things, have, like crocodiles, have lived for a long time. Very successful. Sharks again. Yeah. Um, the only reason they'll probably die out is through us. Yeah. You know? But they're very diverse, very successful as a species. Um, and yet other things sort of die out. Um, you know, flying reptiles, pterosaurs, they sort of died out, and birds then filled their sort of gap. But they lived alongside each other initially, mm -hmm. um, not in competition, I don't think. Is there anything that you believe in that you believe the establishment disagrees wholeheartedly, or do you think you are basically in concordance these days? Yeah, I, I mean, life just carried on. It's not sort of, there's nothing to disagree about. There's no, it's just how reptiles lived, but probably theories on their lifestyle like we get some pterosaurs though this is just one question so there's the rampharinkoids are these pterosaurs that we think were like surface skimmers so in other words they flew along along the surface like pelicans of the water. kind of thing yeah but they flew along the sur surface of the water saw a surface feeding fish dip their beacon and catch it on the wing you know mm -hmm. now that's generally accepted and everyone accepts it now there was i think three fossils found in germany that to tell you perhaps that's not the case and because there's a pterosaur that's actually locked. There's a fish called Aspidorhynchus, which is like a like a long garfish, got a big mm -hmm. pointed rostrum. And imagine this scenario: that the pterosaur, instead of surface skimming, sees a fish and dives down like a gannet to take that fish. At the same time as that little fish that it's after, this Aspidorhynchus fish takes the same thing, and it accidentally spears through the wing membrane. And they die locked together because it got backward pointed teeth on this fish. Uh -huh. And they locked together and they die together. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They, they can't get it. Now, there was that one story from an academic. It's so farcical, you've got to laugh. That it saw the pterosaur flying along and it dived out of the water to catch it and it caught it and it dived together. Well, you've only got to look at the jaws of the small the, the predatory fish, Spiderinkus. It couldn't even rip it apart. It's, it's only a fish. It's only a little tiny jaw, so it wouldn't go for it. Mm -hmm. So we think. I think it's a mistake. So it was, it was going for the same prey and actually made the mistake. Yeah. So those three fossils tell us perhaps that that thing of surface skimming is wrong. And that's what I love is the finding the evidence to say, hang on, it didn't do that, and we got evidence to prove it. The same with the big pliosaurs, these huge marine reptiles with these massive teeth. 25 years ago, they thought they fed on squid. And I said to the guy who was a world expert at that time, he said, well, we found squid hooks in the stomach. Yeah, but one specimen, yeah. Oh, well, that's not enough to make a... No. So along came the lady who worked on just form and function of teeth. 
If you look at Pliosaur teeth saw, it can cut, it can crush, it can pierce, it can do all sorts. Well, that's not, you know, if it's feeding on squid, it would have fine teeth that yeah. catch that slippery prey. And then, you know, I found the evidence. We've met these uh, triangular teeth. We found big triangular bite marks in bones that you could slot the teeth into. Sure. All of a sudden, yeah. Now with the change of views, yeah, it's a generous feeling. It's fantastic. It's storytelling yeah. in, in reverse. And, but you can prove it. You see, mm. that's the nice thing. So I'm not an academic, but I can say, look, you can't argue with this, can you? So do you find that there are therefore two peaks to the enjoyment of it? There's the oh, yeah. find. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. The... And it's ongoing. The thing is, you find something, and for 10 years it might be in the collection, and then you say, I know what. You know what I mean? You yeah. find the evidence. Thing. Yeah. It's just, see what I mean? Oh, it's evidence fantastic. Evidence colour and what they're feeding on. It's brilliant. It really is. And even with the barnacles, the small these goose barnacles, um, we found, or found enough new species to actually f- find out their biases. So they attach themselves to floating objects, and some species attach themselves to dead ammonites that are floating through the water column, mm-hmm. some to wood. And do you think, oh, you can work out, a, you know? Or colour on them, we found the colour of them. It's those, yeah. It's the colour that fascinates me, because yeah. when I but was... But it's not the original colour, no. colour retention. Well, I mean, in, in the, the feather fossil records that they're finding in oh, China yeah. at the moment, yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up with scaly green dinosaurs, yeah. and that was it, the early learning centre plastic jobbies. Um, and it's wonderful now to know, yeah. like, the, the, the huge developments and understanding in... Yeah, Bristol's lead, Bristol University's leading the world in that colour pigments and everything else, finding the colour range in reptiles and birds and all sorts of things, in, even in reptiles. That's stunning. That's fantastic. Um, there are three questions that cool. we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Yeah. Um, some of them are incredibly related to you, and mm. uh, one of them probably not so. First one is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Probably along the ri- banks of the River Volga in Russia because there's some Kimmeridge deposits there I'd really love to see. Just because it's the same yeah. the same stretch? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Have you been out there before? No. No, no, no. But something like that would be great. Just to see something that... I've seen ammonites that come... Same ammonites you find down here you find in Russia. Uh-huh. So I'd love to go and see that just to see what it's like. So you need someone at Gazprom to come along yeah, and give yeah. you a bit of money to yeah. give you a drink. I don't want to get rested either. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to get them back. Best of luck with that yeah. one. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's that wonderful thing about the world shifting is you kind of forget that everything was sort of weirdly interconnected. Oh, yeah, you get Kimmeridge deposits in America, India, Russia... Spain, Portugal. Is that what they, do they call them Kimmeridgean? Yeah. Is that the accepted term? Yeah, because it's that time, that, that time during geological time that's the Kimmeridgean period. Brilliant. Um, second question. Um, should we colonise the moon? We haven't even bloody sorted out this kind. We don't even know what lives under the sea, for God's sakes, no. I'm not interested in that. Well, in which case, I, I'm going to ask on, the then. sort of side question from that, which we asked um, yeah, the Devon Wildlife Trust, is should we colonise the seas? Oh, no, I think we should know our own boundaries. And no. No. We've, we've raped every bloody part of this sort of world. The fish stocks are gone, and the whole ecology of the ocean is changing through our interference with it. Leave it alone and let it regenerate. Do you think... You mentioned sharks and crocodiles mm. earlier as mm. uh, ancient species yeah. that are still surviving. Do you think that down there there might be as yet undiscovered liver? Crushed, yeah. We know more about the moon than we know about what lives under the sea. God, yeah. And, but we don't respect our environment. That's the trouble. You know, what worries me is now plastic particles in the sea. We're changing everything. You know, our bloody pollution that we're, we're carrying out is... And we're, it's our own fault. We're ingesting our own stuff. So don't worry. It will, it will backfire on us. Don't worry about that. With our fossil record, I fear, for the uh, 
Anthropocene or whatever. Just no. think, if the world come to an end tomorrow... What would we leave behind? What would we leave behind? So after 50 million years, most of our edifices and all our things would be gone. So where would you find, my question is, where would you find human remains? And you'd probably only find them in marine mud rocks. Mm-hmm. So imagine this, 100 million years' time, there's a young boy going along, looking through these mud rocks, and finds a hu- part of a human skull. He takes it, this is how it is, he takes it to the local museum and says, I found this, oh, you got that. Yeah, marine mud, yeah, extremely rare. Aquatic animal, but they're not very successful because they, they're really rare. We don't find many of them. How wrong we can be. And this is how everyone, fossils that we find perceived to be this, this, and this, we could be a hundred things. We could be yeah. hundreds of miles out of sink, land has become yeah. sea, air becomes sea, everything gets gathered yeah. in. But as a species, I, you know, to be honest, I don't think we're going to be as successful as the sharks and stuff like that. Oh, God, no. No. I think our own, our own sort of undoing in some ways. And if you really want to be religious and don't say this, you know, if we're made in God's image, did he put a bloody inbuilt foot into us <laughs> just for his own sort of satisfaction? Because we're the only species that actually destroy, kill for the sake of, you know, enjoyment. No other animal does. They yeah. only kill to eat. Um, the final question I ask cool. is, if you could bring back a, st- a species from extinction, what would it be? I wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to. They've had their time. It's like this mammoth thing the other day. They, they're trying to extract the DNA to, to re- re- get this mammoth and put it back on the sort of the Russian steps to actually decrease the deforestation to stop the sort of release of um, methane. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should. It's fantastic. It. Everyone else I've asked has always come up with an answer, and it, it's brilliant that the person who is more in touch with things that have, have well, we, time we've gone and says we underestimate. You know, we're not gods. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't. You know, we're. Oh, I'd like to see our power restricted. You know, in some way, we think we can do everything. We can't. Look at that tsunami. That just proved it. Oh, look at that. You know, they didn't have a clue, and we can't control anything. You know, they, we're so. You've only got the San Andreas fault to open up, volcanism to start there, and the whole American economy goes tits up. Mm-hmm. The whole world then collapses like a pack of cards, and so it should. In my view is that we've had our time in some ways. And on that happy note, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much, Steve. That no, was fantastic. Right. I'm sorry, mate. But no, no, that's absolutely uh, top-notch. Absolutely Probably brilliant. a diverse thing. Well, he's a bloody eccentric. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> If you would like further information about Steve and about his Etches collection, you can find his website at www.theetcheskollection.org. They're on Instagram at etches.collection, Twitter at etcheskollect, and as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, and don't forget to read my blog at www.treesacrowd.fm. In other further exciting news, we're releasing our next episode a week early in a week's time rather than in a fortnight. My reasons for doing this are not Machiavellian, um, but they'll hopefully become very clearer nearer the time. It's a brilliantly exciting interview and a wonderful counterpoint to Steve's. I hope you can tune in then, and until then, I'm David Oakes, and thank you very much for listening to Trees A Crowd. Oh, the oak and the 